Welcome back to another episode of Credal. I have a treat for you today in keeping with our new mission of speaking and thinking about the nexus of theology and culture. I am bringing on a reporter who has recently written a great book about Amazon, but not just Amazon. It's really about America's economic and cultural transformation of the past 20 years and Amazon and the connection between the two. Now, why does all this matter? You might be thinking, why am I listening about uh, Amazon uh, on a you know theology and culture podcast? Well, uh, first of all, Amazon is a huge part of our culture. Uh, you know, I think a plurality of the American population are members of Amazon Prime. At this point, uh, the company has grown to be uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest companies in all of history, depending on how you how you measure that. Um, and this Saturday in the life of the church, we celebrate these feasts of St. Joseph the Worker. Um, St. Joseph is hailed as a model of workmen, of course, in the litany. He was a poor man and an artisan who plied his craft as well as he could to provide for his family. And so St. Pius Twelfth. In 1955, decided to hold up St. Joseph as an example of uh, the redemptive value of human work. Here's a little bit of background about the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker from uh, Franciscan Media. Quote, to foster deep devotion to St. Joseph among Catholics and in response to the May Day celebrations for workers sponsored by communists, Pope Pius XII instituted the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker in 1955. This feast extends the long relationship between Joseph and the cause of workers in both Catholic faith and devotion. Beginning in the book of Genesis, the dignity of human work has long been celebrated as a participation in the creative work of God. By work, humankind both fulfills the command found in Genesis to care for the earth, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and to be productive in their labors. St. Joseph, the carpenter and foster father of Jesus, is but one example of the holiness of human labor. End quote. So this is one aspect of the Amazon issue, the rights of workers. And it's relevant, of course, because of what the what the church remembers on May 1st, uh, St. Joseph the Worker. Now, I mentioned the May Day celebrations. Uh, that was a international uh, celebration of the worker in secular communist circles. And Pope Pius XII wanted to say, okay, you know, you've got the you got the the thrust of this right, uh, but we're not communists. So we will also recognize the worker and the dignity of human work, and we'll do it by celebrating one of the church's greatest saints, St. Joseph, and the the humble and faithful way in which he plied his craft um, in the midst of poverty, by the way. So this is one aspect of the, of the Amazon issue. And I talk with Alec in this interview coming up about the workers whose jobs are displaced by Amazon. In other words, Amazon drives a shoe business uh, out of business. And the people who are working in that shoe factory lose their job or those jobs get outsourced overseas because Amazon forces that company to drive their prices low. Or Amazon just drives them out of business entirely and the warehouse folds. Maybe Amazon comes in and buys up the warehouse. And so the person who was working for the shoe company no longer has a job. There's also people who have their jobs replaced by Amazon. So in that instance, maybe Amazon comes in and buys up the old factory, turns it into a giant warehouse now in the middle of Ohio. And uh, the person who worked for the shoe factory gets their job replaced by Amazon. So they get rehired by Amazon. But in most cases, uh, as we learn from Alec, those are lower wage jobs. So Amazon is is decreasing the quality of life for many of the people in the areas in which it, it, it has a significant presence in the workforce. Uh, and as Alec points out, although some of those jobs are safer, uh, and Alec's book talks about an example where, you know, people go from a steel, a, a steel works to an Amazon warehouse. So the jobs are, are sort of from a physical standpoint safer, but the Amazon jobs in many cases, perhaps even most cases are just rote, soulless, repetitive tasks, largely devoid of human interaction. You sit there on a packaging queue, you just stuff uh, stuff things in boxes that a computer screen tells you to stuff in boxes. Um, there's no sense of team, there's no camaraderie, there's no real closeness with the other human beings who are on your shift. So the, the work it tends to be quantitatively worse in a, in a wage respect uh, and qualitatively worse um, in many respects as well. 
So that's one issue, right? But the issues, of course, extend beyond that. There are lots of questionable business practices all over the place at Amazon. Uh, Amazon in uh, in many markets has become almost a monopoly. You know, for example, in the booksellers market, um, that's a problem if it's if it sees itself as a sensor to um, choose, select and choose what content it chooses to list on its service, right? If it's pushed all other booksellers out of business, it's really hard for people to find the books that they want to find or the books that Amazon doesn't want them to find. Um, the company also tries to use its competitive advantages and business intelligence to put pressure on small businesses to lower their prices. Um, they use proprietary pricing data that only they can see um, to force small businesses essentially out of business by undercutting them on their own products and, and you know, replicating or mimicking those products and then, and then pricing them uh, lower. They secure huge tax breaks for themselves from, from small cities, small municipalities in which they want to build a warehouse. Uh, and those municipalities really can't afford it or shouldn't shouldn't afford it. Um, but Amazon secures those tax breaks for themselves anyway, despite the fact that they, of course, have the money to pay those taxes. Uh, they hire senior government employees to help them win government contracts. I mean, it's really, the list goes on and on. And uh, as I'll say with Alec, I mean, this, this book is really eye-opening and I highly recommend it. Um, you know, in closing, I want to I want to talk about the what the catechism says about some of these concepts as well. But I will I will add that a large segment of the American right tends to glorify private enterprise. Now, I'm a huge private enterprise supporter. I think it is great. I'm all for private private ownership of property. I'm all for private enterprise. I'm all for a thriving market economy. I am all for um, for, you know, having government regulations uh, or a regulatory environment that makes it really easy to start your own business. I think uh, society benefits from all of those things. But we have to say that private enterprise at the expense of the, public, of, the, of the public good is a dangerous thing, right? So if we if we tend to overemphasize private enterprise so much so that we forget the common good or what the catechism calls the universal, universal destination of goods, that's when we have a problem. And so I'm going to read a section of the catechism here, and you will hear about the universal destination of goods. What that means is that even though private property is licit and property can be owned by individual persons— that does not change the universal destination of goods in which God has given the whole of the earth to all of humanity for us. Not us individually, not us as property owners, but us as human beings. That's what the universal destination of goods is all about. So I want to read a portion of the catechism. Uh, relevant sections start at section 2402. And this is really important to keep in mind as we listen to this interview with Alec McGillis. Section 2402. In the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, master them by labor, and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. However, the earth is divided up among men to assure the security of their lives, endangered by poverty and threatened by violence. The appropriation of property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of persons and for helping each of them to meet his basic needs and the needs of those in his charge. It should allow for a natural solidarity to develop between men. So uh, just, you know, think about, think about that, you know, allowing for natural solidarity to develop between men. Is Amazon helping or hindering a natural solidarity? 2403, the right to private property acquired or received in a just way does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of mankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial, even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its exercise. Section 2404. In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns, not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. The ownership of any property makes its holder a steward of providence, with the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits for to others, first of all, his family. Uh, a paraphrase of this might read, with property ownership comes property responsibility. Uh, remember that you are a steward of providence uh, with respect to any property that you own. 
Section 2405, goods of production, material, or immaterial, such as land, factories, practical, or artistic skills, oblige their possessors to employ them in ways that will benefit the greatest number. Those who hold goods for use and consumption should use them with moderation, reserving the better part for guests, for the sick, and the poor. In section 2409, uh, this, this when I was reading this, it reminded me of uh, Amazon's uh, efforts and successful efforts in most instances to collect giant tax breaks for itself. It's not breaking any laws when it does that, uh, any civil laws, that is, but it could, in fact, be uh, violating moral laws. Even, this is now a quote from 2409, even if it does not contradict the provisions of civil law, any form of unjustly taking and keeping the property of others is against the seventh commandment. Thus, deliberate retention of goods, lent, or of objects lost, business fraud, paying unjust wages, forcing up prices by taking advantage of the ignorance or hardship of another. So, lots of things to think about there. I do encourage you to buy this book, uh, as and I, I give you some options to do that uh, at the end of this. I would say don't buy it on Amazon, but if you want to, check out the Credal store on bookshop.org. It's not actually my store, uh, but I have basically a storefront on bookshop.org, and in that, you can see the books that I recommend, uh, some of which I've talked about on the podcast or interviewed authors, et cetera. Um, and you can buy them uh, via bookshop.org from private booksellers. So it's really a great resource. You can go to bookshop.org slash, slash shop, excuse me, slash creedle. Bookshop.org slash shop slash creedle. Uh, and so check out my recommendations there, including Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America by Alec McGillis. Uh, I also have included uh, links to a few of Alec's favorite booksellers, independent booksellers in the show notes. So if you want to go, um, support one of those, please do that. So enjoy this conversation with Alec uh, and let me know if you have any comments or questions. Zach at credopodcast.com. And one other plug, if I may, we have not done a, uh, a reviews and rate, ratings and reviews drive for a while. So if you've been enjoying this podcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give me a rating or review. Five stars would be great, but give me an honest rating. Uh, let me know what I can be doing better if you give less than five. Um, but that way it'll help me to um, just reach more people. So give me a rating or review if you've not done that yet. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Creedle. God bless you. All right, my guest today is Alec McGillis. Alec is a reporter for ProPublica, which for my money is one of the best journalistic outlets out there. They do some really good, interesting investigative work. Alec covers politics and government for ProPublica. He previously reported for The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The Baltimore Sun. He won the 2016 Robin Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting, the 2017 Polk Award for National Reporting, and the 2017 Elijah Parrish Lovejoy Award. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Atlantic, New York, Harper's, and New York Times Magazine, among other publications. He's a resident of Baltimore, uh, and that comes through in his most recent book, uh, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec, welcome to Creedle. So happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, I have to say, uh, your book, I read a lot of books, and your book, For My Money, is one of the best of probably the last 50 books that I've read. Uh, just the way that it, you know, it's, it's a book that's not about Amazon per se, it's really about America, and it tells that story through the lens of Amazon primarily. Uh, and I thought it was really, really fascinating the way you wrote that. Now your background's obviously in political reporting. Your previous uh, book is the 2014 Cynic, which is a biography of Mitch McConnell. So uh, I guess I'll just start off with, with asking you, what made you write Fulfillment? Why did you choose to write this book and why now? It, I mean, you you captured it. I mean, the book um, is is not really about Amazon per se, and it actually didn't start out about Amazon at all. I this book started out um, really goes goes back years uh, to all my traveling as a political reporter around the country and growing more and more sort of alarmed, dismayed. You know, pick your word by by the about the growing gaps, the growing disparities that I would see as a reporter, where I'd go out to um, you know in the 
2008 to 11 periods, covering, covering the Obama campaign, covering the Great Recession in those years as a Washington Post reporter, going to the Midwest, Appalachia, elsewhere, and just being so struck by just how how struggling a lot of these towns and cities were, just how how badly things were going out there. It reminded me so much of my own hometown in Western Mass, Pittsfield, Mass, former GE, GE town that's been just left reeling by the departure of GE. And 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 then I'd come back to DC, um, where you know I was based with a, with a post, and was just so struck by the incredible prosperity on display there, the um, which had in a way grown even more um, intense during the Great Recession. So much of the money that we spent on on on, on, the, on the stimulus kind of stayed in Washington. So DC got only wealthier, and so you had this incredible wealth and prosperity and kind of complacency and. and there in this the sense of disconnect from what was actually happening out around the country and and it bothered me greatly and I you know kept thinking about that in as as I kept reporting in the years to follow and then and then um, and then Trump gets elected and and it just seemed all the more clear clear to me that these regional disparities were having a really you know major impact on our country on our politics and I needed to write about them somehow and and, and then settled on, took me about a year to settle on the right frame for the story, but settled on Amazon as the frame to tell the story of disparity. Um, and just, and I did, chose it for two reasons. One was that the company is so, so ubiquitous now in our life that it just serves very well as a thread to take, kind of take you around the country, the, the America of today. Um, and it's just a, as a kind of a metaphor or expression of what we've become um, very handy, um, but then it's also a good frame because it's it, it had it itself and along with the other tech giants um, helps to explain the these disparities. So much of our our these incredibly unhealthy regional concentrations of wealth um, are linked to the concentration of our economy, in, you know, in certain companies and certain sectors, and and so it it itself is a, is a cause of this problem. Not not far from the only cause, but a major cause and. And so that's how I ended up using Amazon as the the lens onto onto our country and these and these disparities. And I think that lens is what makes this book so brilliant and such a contribution to this discussion, this broader discussion that's been taking place since 2016 and in some circles even before that. Uh, I was I was on you know where else Amazon. Speaking of the ubiquity of Amazon, and I was looking at your book on there and the reviews. Because reviews can sometimes, can sometimes be telling on sort of just how a book is being received by people who are reading it. And the vast majority of the reviews are very positive. There's one two star. There's no one star reviews. There's one two star review. And that person was saying, you know, this is just rinse, repeat the same thing we've been hearing from 2016, et cetera. Uh, that person's very wrong because we've been hearing about the urban rural divide since 2016. Uh, and even just recently, you know, uh, this past week, I saw people sharing on Twitter, like, here's the here's the electoral con- here's the population concentration along the coasts. And that equals basically everything in between minus, you know, Chicago, Houston, et cetera, some of the big cities. Uh, the point being, there's a huge divide between the urban centers, uh, urban political centers and rural areas in, in America. And that's all true. And that's been discussed since 2016. But I think what your book does, what your research does is is add a layer of complexity in understanding the causality of that. Right. It's not just about urban rural divide. It's about how. Amazon and companies like it and this what you call one click America, this this phenomenon of one click fulfillment 
has devastated jobs in largely rural areas, has created entire cities that are left behind when they were once booming towns, like you mentioned Dayton at length in the book. Um, and so I really appreciate that about your work. So in what in what ways do you think this sort of adds, adds a nuance or complexity or better understanding to the sort of urban rural narrative that we've been hearing for the past five years? I think in, in two main ways. One is that the book does try to get across that it's not only about urban and rural, it's also about about the divide, growing disparities between cities. Um, and it's, you know, what I kind of describe as a, a set of winner-take-all cities um, like uh, Seattle, DC, which are the two ones I focus on in the book, but then of course also the Bay Area, Boston, New York, and a few others. And on the one hand, and then a much larger group of kind of left behind cities um, that, you know, some of them quite large, quite large, you know, like, like a Baltimore or a Cleveland or a St. Louis or Memphis. And, and, and just these, um, so you have these disparities that are not, they're not, they're, it's not only the, the sort of left behind um, Trump rural spaces that, that, you know, that have gotten so much attention. Although I do have a chapter on, on those kind of places um, based in Southeast Ohio and rural Southeast Ohio. Um, and because I think it's so important that we, so often we've, we, we miss the fact that it's about these, the left behind cities as well. And, and which, which kind of gets it past just the simple red blue thing, because of course, a lot of these left behind cities are themselves very blue. Um, but they're but they're really struggling and and they don't get enough attention. Um, and but then the other half, the, the other sort of new, you know, sort of new uh, emphasis in the book is is to connect the these regional disparities to the the economic concentration. Um, there's been a lot of talk about antitrust, right? These you know, and the tech giants and how we have to do something about reining in their 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 scale and their power. Um, but, and then there's a lot of talk, there's been quite a bit of talk about, about, about our, about inequality and our economic disparities through mainly through the political lens, um, the, the Trump voting lens, but we haven't really connected the two. And there's the fact, uh, what, what one thing, one big thing I wanted this book to do was to, to show how to get the antitrust people, um, thinking more about thinking more regional terms, um, not just thinking in terms of. You know markets and, and the, all the problems that the concentration um, market concentration has caused in our markets and our economy, but also what the, the effect it's had on our in our geography and our landscape. But then and then also on the flip side, that to get people who 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 think a lot about the problems of our cities to think to realize that that's that those problems are connected to to antitrust so, and and to and to economic concentrations. For, so for instance, all these people in the in the winter cities who fret so much about housing costs in their in these cities and how unaffordable they've become, the DCs and Seattle's and New York's, and this endless fight that these that you have in these cities between the people who want to build more supply and the people who want to use rent control. And it's this whole vicious kind of intra-left fight. Um, and what, what that fight overlooks, it's kind of, you know, a little bit confounding, is that it overlooks the fact that one reason you have such unaffordability in these cities is that simply there's so much wealth and prosperity concentrated in just a few of them. Right. Um, and this the, that problem of, of unaffordability and displacement um, would not be so nearly so acute if you didn't have such such concentration of growth and prosperity in just a handful of places. And, and that concentration is... Um, is is partly a, an antitrust problem, and so just to get get people sort of on both sides of these issues, both the sort of 
city inequality half people and then the antitrust people realizing that 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 these two spheres are very much connected that totally makes sense and i think in your book there's no better example than the hq2 uh, I was going to say episode or saga, but I'll, I'll call it a fiasco instead, where Amazon said, we're going to have a second headquarters. Obviously, our our Seattle headquarters is massive. And you go into that at length in the book, too. I mean, just, you know, a, uh, a I think double digit, maybe not double digit, but a significant percentage of the Seattle population are employees of Amazon. And that's just how big they are. And they own, you know, like half of the the commercial real estate in, in Seattle. I mean, you go into all the numbers. It's It's insane. It's staggering. Uh, but they announced they're going to do HQ2, and this was several years ago. And I, I distinctly remember living in Austin at the time and thinking, "Oh, I hope Austin does not win this because the traffic's already bad here, etc." But, but it was such a, it was such a thing that cities wanted that they were, you know, almost selling themselves to Amazon. I think you even include this anecdote of the the town in Georgia that offered to rename itself Amazon. I mean, companies just going or cities just going to absurd lengths to woo this giant corporatist entity that didn't need their money or their tax breaks, but they offered both in abundance. And at the time, some people said, this is great. This is an opportunity for Amazon to revitalize a, a lost American city. You mentioned in the book, St. Louis. I used to live in St. Louis as well. Uh, I can attest to, to it, its need for revitalization. Same thing with a place like Dayton. I've been through Dayton, not, not there at length, but instead, uh, Amazon chooses New York and Washington, the same Washington where, you know, Jeff Bezos had sort of uh, primed the primed the pump by buying up the hometown newspaper. I mean, it, it's really it's really uh, astounding uh, to what length cities wanted them and then to what lengths Amazon went to just go and further concentrate wealth and power in the two biggest coastal power centers on the East Coast. No, it was amazing to watch, to watch that whole spectacle play out. It was playing out while I was working in the book. And actually, I chose Washington, D.C. as one of my two sort of winter cities before Amazon chose it for HQ2. And so that turned out to be very serendipitous. And mm. but it was and just, yes, after all this talk about how, you know, these striving cities that, that were so, so eager for this boost, you know, just not just, you know, offering all this all this money and incentives, but also all the time they these they took these cities strapped city governments took so much time to put together these bids and and you know stayed up you know pull all nighters basically to 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 make yeah. their case and and then they go ahead and they pick the two most obvious cities you know cities that were just that you would have you know uh, you know expected them to go with all along and and it was just the absolute ultimate example of this this winner take all. Um, dynamic that where it's just classic. It's rich get richer. You, you'd think that there'd be some kind of not just a, some kind of political appeal to, to Amazon and trying to um, to rebalance things um, by by going to a to a say, St. Louis um, and just and in one fell swoop just doing you know doing quite a good deal toward kind of a regional rebalancing um, in our country. Um, and just the kind of statement that that would make, but but also that that you think there would be some kind of just pure cost advantage to it because you're just going somewhere that's less less expensive, less crowded. Um, but but instead they they are pulled to a place like D.C. to to, to Arlington across the river mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. One is that as they there's a public reason, which is that, that that's where the um, 
that you have all this this the skilled tech workforce and this is you know what they always talk about that you want to this this is how this is why this is a big reason why you know why you end up with silicon valleys or seattle's is that tech the tech economy is naturally kind of agglomerating you want to be where um where you've got other tech workers that you can sort of draw from um, and and then and then turn the, the workforce wants to be somewhere where they themselves have plenty of options in case one thing doesn't doesn't work out, um, and that's you know Amazon initially went to Seattle because Microsoft was already there, so they can they can um, sort of they knew that they had that workforce there to to build off of, um, but the so that's that's one reason they go to Washington because you have this already this huge um, kind of tech workforce there that's that's kind of grown up with a whole kind of security contractor racket right. um, that's kind of spread out from the, the beltway, the whole kind of post 9-11 counterterrorism, homeland security, uh, beltway bandit um, universe. But then the other other reason, of course, that they end up, that they go there, which is less, which is not stated publicly, is that, that it's the seat of the federal government. And right now the biggest threat to Amazon comes not so much from other companies, but from from the threat of possible federal intervention um, into their enormousness, and 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 so it, it makes sense to to set up shop there to to become a big friendly corporate neighbor, um, some you know big company that's investing billions there, hiring all sorts of people, so that the guy you know five or ten years from now you're much less likely to see Amazon as a threat if you're a if you're a member of the, gov- of the government or the FTC or, or a member of the media, if, 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 you know, you know that Amazon is just the guy that employs the, the, the friendly Jimmy who is at the, your daughter's soccer game, you know, right. sitting next to you on the sidelines. And, yep. and so that's, that was the other big reason for their going there. Their, their presence, Amazon's presence in DC is just astonishing how much it's grown in the last few years. And it's sort of a, a great untold story that I, that I tried to, that I tried to tell and the, between buying the paper, uh, Bezos buying the paper and buying the biggest mansion in town to turn into a kind of salon, $35, $35 million total investment, um, in this, in this mansion. Um, and, and then all the, the this vast increase in lobbying spending, the second biggest lobbying spender in town, and then all the federal contracts that they're getting for the cloud. And now on top of that, you add an HQ2 and it's, they are just—they are a giant now in Washington. Yeah, well, to me, the most alarming story or or aspect of that story was the revolving door, right? The the lobbyists, the Jay Carneys of the world, who have gone from senior positions in in the federal administrations, uh, right to work for Amazon. Um, and I forget that forget her name, but the the head of um, the GSA, right? The head of government yes. contracting, Anne basically. Ron. Yeah, she Anne she Ron. headed to yeah. Amazon. When and I mean, that's just that's just. Uh, I mean, amazing. <laughs> it's it's amazing to me that there are not laws that prevent this from happening. That you can't have the head of the GSA just uh, announce her intention and then go work for one of the probably the company that has the largest you know amount of outstanding dollars on uh, existing bids into the government, et cetera. It, it's amazing to me that that happens. But to me, that was the most alarming of the whole story. Yeah, that was. I mean, it's it was an incredible episode. I mean, you had. She was she was at the top of the, of in the entire vast federal procurement world, which is this, you know billions and billions of dollars a year in federal spending, and um, and then just uh, you know a couple months before the end of the Obama administration, um, she jumps over to Amazon to 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 lead their whole new entire new division dedicated to to getting federal procurement um, yeah. government procurement 
uh, money, and um, and it came out. You know, I think it was the Guardian that reported um, that she was engaged. In, you're supposed to have like a year off, your right. cooling off period. You know, right. and, and it, according, according to the Guardian, she um, basically, you know, seems seems to have in some way you know, run run up against that. Um, oh, okay, and in in their efforts to get this to get um, to get a huge chunk of the, of of the of of the federal procurement um, spend, um, so um, no, it's just you know that yeah that, that that but this is this is how it works, right? I mean, it's and it's I was at this one meeting in um in El Paso, this incredible moment in El Paso where I was watching um, several top Amazon executives putting the squeeze on a bunch of local office supply dealers in El Paso who they were trying to persuade to come join the marketplace, become third-party sellers on the website, and which is where Amazon, you know, well well over half of the site now of Amazon's retail site is now, the sales come from third-party sellers, not Amazon selling things directly wholesale on the site. And it's much more lucrative for Amazon because they get all these fees and commissions. And, and they were... Um, pressuring all these these local businessmen to 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 join the work marketplace, basically saying, "Look, this is where it's at now. Everyone's doing this. You better you better come over. This is where everyone now goes to buy their stuff." And and in that room were um, two the two of the three um, the two top most senior executives in that room who were making that you know that push were both former um, government employees, um, not federal, but but. Um, one was the head of King County procurement mm-hmm. in Seattle and the other one had worked in LA and, you know, that's, and they, of course they, they're very effective in that role because they, they, they're speaking to people who used to be, you know, who occupy the exact same kind of roles uh, as, as they now do. Because the other part of their sale, of course, is trying to get local officials to start buying all, buying all right. their stuff from Amazon. Right. Like school supplies, for example, or exactly. office supplies. Yeah. Like office you talk about in the book. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this seems to be like a common uh, page out of the Amazon playbook to go after government procurement officials, hire them, and then use them to help sell contracts to the government to do that sort of thing. And and that's only the tip of the iceberg, right? You go into these other things in the book too, right? Like Amazon's dynamic pricing schemes, uh, Amazon figuring out how much money third-party sellers can sell a certain product for and then undercutting them with the amazon version of that product so that amazon gets 100 percent of the cut rather than you know the 30 percent that you know the only 30 percent that they get from a third-party seller um you know amazon going uh, going in and getting major tax breaks from municipalities where they build out warehouses or any sort of other corporate presence etc um and I, I think there's really no other word that i was thinking of when i think about these things other than nefarious to describe these various tactics that amazon uses but to, to bring this back to the city's point you also have this this lengthy um, part of your book dedicated to talking about bethlehem steel's sparrows point uh this major steel production area in maryland um and as as i was reading this i was thinking you know is this stuff unique to amazon these sort of nefarious practices or is this just sort of a 21st century flavor on the bethlehem steel's of last century, right? So in other words, is there something qualitatively different about what Amazon and companies like it, but primarily Amazon are doing now and what the Bethlehem steels of the world did 50, 60, 70 years ago? Uh, no, there definitely are echoes and there, there are two different sorts of echoes in a way. I think there's the, uh, and I, you know, I, I definitely get into this quite a bit in the chapter about Beth Steele and and its transformation. I mean, with what would happen here at that site in Maryland, it's called Sparrows Point, 
Peninsula, just outside Baltimore, is extraordinary. We, you had the biggest, literally the biggest steel mill in the entire world, 30,000 workers um, in the late 50s, massive company town. Um, it's now been replaced, completely replaced. It's completely wiped off the face of this peninsula and it's been replaced now by by a business park, uh, sort of a logistics business park that includes two Amazon warehouses. Wow. And, um, and so and what you see there is essentially kind of almost like a cycle where you have you had work at that um, at that mill in the early 20th century was incredibly grueling, incredibly low paid. Um, you know, workers just had crazy hours, crazy pressure on the job. Um, and 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 then over time, of course, managed to to get unionized and raise their pay quite a lot, get a lot more say on the job. Um, had a lot more kind of a lot more respect and turn those jobs into something that was sustainable and and um, and really kind of middle class family supporting and and now we're kind of back to square one again where you're back to um, to non union labor that isn't paid as much as it's worth where you have very little say in the job you have crazy expect expectations um, you. Um, the, incredibly high turnover because the jobs are so grueling and so sort of un, 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 unfulfilling in, in various ways. Um, and so, um, and with one, one important difference, of course, is that the jobs, jobs are right, physically taxing now, but they're not nearly as dangerous as, the, as right. those steel mill jobs were, that should be noted. Um, but the, um, so, so yeah, so in that sense, we're, we're really kind of We've become full circle, and, and and so the question now in a lot of these union fights is whether whether the warehouse work will be able to be lifted up to something that's more sustainable, more more kind of middle class, the way that the that the steel and other manufacturing work was over the 20th century. Um, the other echo, though, of course, um, to an earlier time, is on is on the sort of monopoly front, um, where you have where we we have absolutely now returned to a, mo- a moment like 1910, 1915, when we were, you know, when an earlier generation of antitrust reformers mm-hmm. and trust busters were, were dealing with the standard oils of the time where you had right. this incredible dominance of, of uh, companies that were essentially controlling, um, were so powerful because they basically had, they controlled both the platform and what was sort of carried on the platform, you know, so uh, you know, you, you had if you had both the the railroads and the and the oil business, you know, you you were you were just um, you were unbeatable because because you you were uh, you the, the the rival oil producers producers had to send their product on the, on the rails that you owned, and right, you were right. also competing against that. You know, so so we're back to we're back to that in a sense now with with the platform like Amazon, where they both own the platform and are competing against other sellers on the platform. Um, and and so yes, there there are absolutely echoes to, to earlier times. The, the one one important difference, though, I, you know, coming back to the steelwork, is that this is where I think this gets into you know one, one ways in which I think the book has sort of somewhat more sort of uh, spiritual or kind of um, you know somewhat more amorphous kind of um, aspect to it is that is that the work at the steel mill was not just better paid than the work at the warehouse. It was also for a lot of those guys, and they were mostly guys, was was vastly more meaningful and mm-hmm. purposeful, and 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 fulfilling, and and um, much more fellowship and camaraderie, and much more social than the work at the warehouse, which is so atomized and so 
um, so rote and, and really kind of almost for a lot of the jobs in the warehouse, really almost robotic. And, and, and I, and I tell that the story of that sort of transformation of one kind of work to the other through this figure of a guy who actually spent three decades working at the steel mill and then went to work at the warehouse in the exact same piece of land and, and, and could barely, barely lasted a few years um, at the, at the warehouse because it, partly because the work was just so much more isolating and, and so much less meaningful. Um, and, and, you know, just one, one aspect in which this whole new world, this one click world is, is, has made us all so much more atomized, not just in our, as, as consumers, um, but also, but also the, the work that's being done. If you think about the fact that work retail used to be, you know, the classic retail job used to be a retail sales clerk, um, at the, at the store who was speaking to customers, um, mm-hmm. Right. In some form or other. And now that has essentially been replaced by stone almost all, all, all by themselves in the warehouse, standing at the conveyor belt, standing at the, at the robots as they bring over the, the drawers for you to, to take the items out of and put them and put them on the conveyor belt. Um, and, and just, just how much more, um, isolating everything has become both for the consumer who's no longer even speaking to anyone when they make their purchase no connection to human, no connection to any kind of anyone else in the world around you when you make that when you make that one click purchase and then the worker who's fulfilling the order for you also just um almost entirely isolated right and they have no idea who you are or who the box that they're packing up is going to they just they just you know would do what comes in the queue they pack it up and send it off yeah i thought that was one of the the best parts of your book and you know i think most people who read the book and probably agree that amazon is a problem but the, the follow-on question I have for you arising from what you just said now is, is Amazon more of a symptom or is it the disease, right? It, or, or is it just a chicken egg problem and we really, it's just a vicious cycle and Amazon has been created by a culture that, that atomizes people and doesn't value the individual and doesn't value the worker. Uh, and then it caters to the same consumer, you know, that, that creates the conditions for its thriving, if that makes sense. So is it a symptom disease or can we really not say? Um, I, I think it's both. And I think it's important to kind of, you know, th- think about this carefully because this is what Amazon's kind of line in response to me was in the months when I was speaking with them was essentially that we are, look, we're just a symptom. We're, um, the, you have these larger forces, technology, yeah. globalization, and, and we're just meeting the market need. We're just meeting the market need. And there was always going to be some company, some, some big e-commerce company. Yeah. At this point in time, and it just happens to be us. It could just as right. easily have been someone else, um, and which is true to a certain extent. But I think what that misses is that the company has um, has exacerbated a lot of these dynamics and problems through specific choices that it's made, and it it did not have to pursue tax breaks and incentives and subsidies around the country as aggressively as it did at all at all these different levels of of tax and government. Um, it did not have to make make the, the work in the warehouses as insanely demanding and high pressure as it did. I mean, it has essentially kind of revolutionized warehouse logistics work, you know, compared to what, what warehouses kind of looked like before and how they functioned before. Amazon's just run at a whole different level of, of, of pressure and demand and expectation. Um, and, and then, and then finally, you know, going back to the choice of, of the new headquarters, it did not have to choose a place like DC for a second right. headquarters. It could have made a choice with, with sort of more of the, the country's um, balance and needs more in mind. So I, 
and I just generally, I, there's a tendency I feel like in, um, not just from Amazon, the company making its PR defense, but also I think among a lot of kind of our, our wonk liberal journalist types to, 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 to reach to the structure and systemic structural and systemic arguments to a fault. And, you know, I, I, Absolutely, you know, I like to think of things in systemic and structural ways, and the book is is partly an attempt to do that. But, but, but we all there is still agency. There's still corporate agency. There's still personal agency, um, and you know, Amazon made specific choices that they can be held to account for, and and then we as consumers too. I mean, I think you know, this um, we also have agency and. Um, I've been careful not to, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm not, I haven't been out there calling for a boycott or a boycott or even, you know, advocating any kind of full abstention. I don't do full abstention, but um, but I do think right now we do have we we have we have a choice to make in that sort of how we live and how we go about our, our life, not just in terms of what we're buying, um, where we're buying, but but just how we're interacting with the world around us. And and, and after this year when we were just so so embrace the one-click existence to, to such an extreme, arguably even in excess of what what was sort of required by public health. Yeah, by, by public health, and and so it's just so important that we now that important that we now sort of make the effort to return to the physical world around us, um, and because and engage once again in our in our towns and cities. Because if we don't, then they will just wither. That's a great rallying cry, and uh, I, I like what you said there about the systemic structural causes versus the personal agency. Uh, I did my my graduate work at the University of Oxford on international relations, and structural accounts dominate a lot of the the the, the field of international relations. Uh, and I did my master's thesis on a guy who emphasized personal agency instead, and kind of a school of thought that emphasizes personal agency, because um, you know what is what is a structural or um, what, what is a structural or systemic account other than the sum total of personal agency interacting, right? And so, so what you say there, I think, is really important. And that leads me to what's probably what, what probably for time's sake will have to be my final question here. But should I cancel my Amazon Prime account? And I'm I, I'm asking this, you know, kind of um, it, not so much for me because I think I am going to cancel my Amazon Prime account. I think your book has convinced me that this is not a company that I want to be supporting with a an annual fee that I give to them every year. You know, if I need to order something for, off of Amazon because that's the only place I can get it, that's one thing. Um, but I don't think I want to be paying paying Amazon Prime anymore. Uh, I think this is where agency can come into play. I would rather give my money to small businesses that are in my town, in my community, um, or, or you know, other e-commerce sites that do not show the sort of nefarious monopolistic tendencies of Amazon. Uh, I don't know you said you're not, you're not a, a total abstainer from Amazon, but just what are your thoughts in general about doing business with the company as a consumer? Yeah, I mean that that's I think that's a pretty good place to sort of draw draw the line. That's sort of how I've drawn the line these last few years. I I don't belong to Prime, and and if I you know, but if I if I absolutely have to find, I can only find something there. Some some obscure used book, or the other. The, the last time thing I ordered from them was a, a handle for my um, a latch for my truck pickup truck tailgate that had oh nice it. yeah you know, and although I, if I looked even harder, I probably could have found that at, at an auto supply store. And sure. But, um, but it's, it's far, few and far between. And I, so, you know, I, it's kind of like, you know, moderation and all things sort of thing. And it, but what we saw this last year was anything but moderation, right? You just, you'd see it just, um, 
you know, especially in the blue cities, you know, Rita's even more, especially strong reliance on Amazon in the blue cities because, because, um, well, first of all, um, the Amazon's strongest market has always been sort of upper middle, middle, upper middle class, yeah, um, right. blue, blue, big blue metros. But this past year, because, because blue cities took, um, the threat of COVID even more seriously, they were even more likely to kind of do the one click thing and so hunker up, down. Yeah. Hunker so down. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so you end up, you see this, these, you know, all the, all the trappings of it, just the, the all the boxes piled out inside buildings right. in New York where they sometimes have to spread them on the sidewalk because they can't fit them in the lobby and, or, you know, um, in the, you go through the alleys of a nice neighborhood and on recycling day and it's just, you know, cardboard boxes, you know, piled high as far as I, I can see. And that's amazing. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's about, it's now about moderating that and, and somehow trying to, um, to just be, to be more conscious of, of those decisions and, but it really, but it does go beyond just, I think just beyond, beyond Amazon and also just to re-engaging generally with, with the, the world around you, you know, say, you know, with entertainment, you know, just, um, you know, as, as uh, Frances McDormand said on the Oscar night the other night, she said, you know, please go see this movie and the other movies in theaters and, um, and, you know, don't, don't just hunker down on Netflix and, yeah. And you know, get back to the to, to the movies, the actual theater, the, the um, you know, the concerts. Like it's it is it's so important that you know after this year of hunkering down that we that we do reengage. And um, and I you know that that the book really is 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 in part a an, an implicit you know kind of um, just overture or or kind of. Um, uh, Kind of plea on behalf of the of the physical world, the physical space, the the, the towns and cities that we live in, and that we to, to, and and a warning about the about what comes with just going all in on the on the one click kind of life. That's great. I mean, it, it, I think it is a great clarion call for action. Like I said, I never really thought about canceling my Prime account until I read your book, and uh, and now I'm pretty sure I'm going to. So, in, in fact, uh, I think you've inspired me even more. So, I think I'm going to end this conversation and go cancel it right now. Um, so, uh, Alec, I'm going to point people to buy your book. It's called fulfillment winning and losing in one click America. I encourage everyone to buy it buy buy a couple copies, give them to your friends and neighbors. Uh, I would say don't buy it from Amazon. So, uh, Alec, do you have a favorite independent bookseller or another, another place where you're pointing people to buy your book? Sure. A lot of independent bookstores now have, have set up very good, um, online ordering sites where you can either then come pick it up at their, at their door or, or they'll send it to you. Um, and um, and I, the one the closest to my heart is one here in Baltimore called the Ivy. Um, they they hosted a wonderful in-person event for me when the book uh, launched last month. We had a wonderful outdoor, cold but outdoor event. Um, and um, so the Ivy, yeah, the Ivy in Baltimore. But really, any of your 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 local seller almost surely has a good uh, you know online ordering setup to, to use. Perfect. Been, that sounds all, great. The, all the independent stores have been just great supporters of the book. I've had five or six, um, you know, sort of Zoom book discussions around the country. Oh, nice. It's been, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to see the reception is uh, is going well for the book. Uh, I hope that more and more people read it because I think it is a good clarion call. It's a warning. It's a great understanding of how we got to where we are. And I encourage everyone to uh, to include it. I'm going to look up the Ivy and uh, I'll find it and put a link to it in the show notes so people want to get the book from. Uh, Alex's favorite favorite bookstore uh, in Baltimore. Go ahead and do that. 
Um, and so, uh, and I'll try to find some other independent bookstores as well, where you can buy it if there's one maybe closer to you or in your town. So Alec, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate this. Uh, I love the book and I was, I was so thrilled when you said you'd, you'd give me 45 minutes of your time. So thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.